0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Has anyone here ever been uh, to Europe at all? you traveled there? Uh, a couple of you. Uh, I've been to Europe uh, though it wasn't recently. I had a chance to travel when I was in high school. I was on a um, summer mission trip where we stayed the entire summer in, in Switzerland. And they gave us a chance every, uh, about once every week or two to do some sightseeing. And I enjoyed being able to go and, and see some of these small European towns. But what really caught my attention was not the European towns. It was the European cathedrals. They were incredible. Jeremy, put up a picture of what some of these look like. Incredibly vast, beautiful, ornate. Oftentimes, this incredible sculptures and and pictures on them. Show us the next one, Jeremy. Here's another example of what some of these kind of cathedrals can look like. You walk into them, and you feel like you have officially come into the presence of God. God. Now, thanks, Jeremy. That was a shocker for me. You see, I grew up Baptist. (laughs) I grew up in one of those churches with all straight pews, everything like a box, you know, and white walls. And the pastor had one of those pulpits that was so big, he could keep an entire library open in front of him when preaching on Sunday. (laughs) And just real simple. And then I started to wonder, you know, why is it that it looks like in the Protestant churches, they fired the architect before he got a chance to be creative? Yet in these old Catholic cathedrals are filled with images and pictures and such amounts of, vast amounts of color. What's going on here? Well, I have to tell you that it's uh, not because the architect was fired. <laughs> that often Protestant churches are so plain. It actually all has to do with the second commandment, the commandment we're going to be studying this morning. This summer, we're working our way in Crosswinds through the Ten Commandments, and we've learned that the Ten Commandments aren't there to take life away from us. They're actually to give life to us. God gave us the commandments for our good, for our joy and for our benefit. The little tagline that we've been trying to hit again and again throughout this series is it's after God set his people free from Egypt that he gave them the Ten Commandments to keep his people free. The Ten Commandments all have to do with our our freedom. They're for our good. Now, last week, we looked at the first of the Ten Commandments, where it says, you should have no other gods before me, or literally beside me. God says, I'm the only one out there. Give your affection and worship to me and to me alone. Last week, we learned why. We learned that one of the things is he says, if you are to worship an idol, it's just such a foolish thing, because worshiping an idol is like worshiping a scarecrow in a cucumber patch, to quote Jeremiah really not the most intelligent thing to do. And if there is something behind that idol, the scriptures are very clear that it's a dark, demonic power. And the demonic powers aren't there to give you life, trust me. They're there to take away your life. And because of our joy and for our good, God says, worship me and worship me alone. So last week, the first commandment was all about making sure we worship the right God. Now, we come to the second commandment this morning, and it's about worshiping the right God the right way. So if you have your outlines, take them out. I have the second commandment uh, on the top. We're going to read it together. It's a little bit lengthier of one of the commandments, but we're going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go ahead and teach it. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water, or under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those Who love me and keep my commandments. Incidentally, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran church, you're gonna feel a little uncomfortable right at this moment, because you're thinking, this is not quite the way I remember the Ten Commandments being ordered. The Roman Catholic and the Lutheran church traditionally actually combine the first and second commandments we're looking at into one commandment. And you may wonder well, how do they end up with ten? What they do is they go to the last commandment and they actually split that in half to get the number back up to 10. Now, in one sense, you can say that's understandable and okay. Because in the Hebrew text, trust me, there's not Roman numerals, no Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2. It's just not that way. But personally, after my study, I feel linguistically and contextually, I. I personally feel that the Protestant ordering of the commandments is proper and right, and that this is the second commandment. The question often becomes then, well, why do many times the, the, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans lump the first and second one together? Many people believe it's to soften the blow of this second commandment, which says to have no graven images involved in worship. Because frequently, quite honestly, Roman Catholics have many paintings and many statues and many images involved in worship. And they oftentimes would seem to become a very clear violation of the second commandment itself. Now this commandment we're going to look at, actually if you look at it in the text, breaks up into four parts. The first part is the explaining what the commandment itself means. And then the second part is the reason for the commandment. The third part is the warning that goes with breaking the commandment, and the fourth is the promise that goes with keeping the commandment. So under those four headings, we'll work our way through a study of this commandment. So let's begin. Number one, what does the second commandment mean? We read it in verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. The command says, don't make for yourself any kind of carved image to help you in your worship of God, or to help you picture God. Personally, I, I like the old, the old King James translation on this, which says, "Don't make for yourself any graven image, because graven simply means engraved." You know, don't take your hand with a tool on a piece of metal or a piece of stone or a piece of wood or like a paintbrush on it and try and make something that would help you picture God or help you worship God. No birds, he says, in the air. No animals on the ground. No, nothing that's in the waters. Nothing that's under the earth. Pretty much everything is off limits. You have to worship the right God the right way. And the right way involves not making any kind of graven images to assist you and help you in worship. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Remember when Moses is getting this command. He's on, he's on Mount Sinai speaking with God. What was actually going on at the base of Mount Sinai at this time? The golden calf. Exactly. The people are in the process of actually breaking the very second commandment. In Exodus 32, that's what we find. In fact, let me, let me read for you a little section of Exodus 32. Aaron? who had made the golden calf. And he says this in verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool. See the engraven image right there? And made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You can think of the golden calf. It's Aaron's senior art project. Because he fashioned it and he engraved it. But here's what most people don't realize. We typically think that the golden calf is an alternate God for them to worship. That wasn't what was happening. The golden calf was a way that they were going to look at worshiping the true God who was on Mount Sinai. The golden calf was an attempt at Aaron making the incomprehensible God a little more comprehensible, giving the people something that they could relate to and connect with. In fact, if you wonder and you think, well, I thought the golden calf was a different God, just continue to the next verse. And what does Aaron say? When Aaron saw this... he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You want to worship the God that's with Moses on Mount Sinai? You do it through the golden calf by this handcrafted image. Worshiping the right God, but they're going to be doing it the wrong way. I often wondered, why did he make a golden calf? I mean, why not a golden ostrich? You ever think that? Well, remember contextually, uh, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. We saw a little bit of the Egyptian gods last week. I briefly mentioned this last week, but the Egyptian gods are often uh, represented by animals, if you study this. Like there's a, a god who has a frog head and a human body. Another god who has a falcon head and a human body. The chief among the Egyptians' gods is what's called the apis bull. And so we're thinking, oh, okay, well, the chief uh, Egyptian god is a bull, and we're talking to the chief god here, so maybe we should represent him with a bull, a golden calf. That's where it's coming together. Well, we know what happened. Moses came down saw that they're doing the golden calf. He was furious. He actually destroys like the first copy of the Ten Commandments. You know he's angry. A little anger management issue there. Ends up, goes down, and he grinds the golden calf. He burns the golden calf. He puts it in the stream and makes people drink from the stream so they never forget not to have a golden calf. Well, come on. They're trying to worship the right God. They're just doing it the wrong way. What makes that such a big deal? That moves us to the second point in our outline. Why did God forbid man-made, a man-made image to help us worship? What's the reason? Here's where it gets interesting. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The reason that you don't make an image is because of my jealousy. All right, some of you are thinking, that's weird. I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Jealousy is wanting what somebody else has. No, actually, that's envy. Envy is wanting something that somebody else has that you want. The jealousy that is talking about here is different. This is a righteous jealousy. Instead of wanting something you don't have, this is protecting something that you should have. This kind of jealousy can best be described as the feeling that comes over a husband when he sees his wife in another man's arms. That's wrong. She's mine, not yours. That's the kind of feelings that comes over God when he sees his people crafting an image with their hands and pouring out their love and affection to that created image instead of him. That love and affection, is supposed to belong to me. Not to that thing you created with your hands. Now, there's more to the picture than just this simple act of jealousy. Let me give you a couple other pieces to help you understand. Graven images, by the way, always make God smaller. They do. Let me show you a picture. This is a picture uh, of Cindy and I. Some of you remember this. Uh, On Mother's Day, we had a Mother's Day photo booth out in in the foyer. They took a photo of us. Here's the question. Now, is this an accurate photo of us? Other than I can tell you the camera put on 10 pounds. Is it an accurate photo? Uh, no. Like, it says family, but it doesn't show you three of my children. It doesn't show you my father who lives with us. It doesn't tell you anything about my wife's cooking skills. By the way, she's great, especially when she cooks Italian. It doesn't tell you anything about the languages that we speak. It doesn't tell you anything about the home where we live. You see, a picture is just a little slice in time. An image is a slice in time. And it automatically reduces things and makes them smaller. Because it cannot convey all there is to a person. The same thing goes on when it comes to our worship of God, when his people make an image Or some kind of idol or icon that they think is going to help them picture him and help them worship him. Inadvertently, what they always do is reduce him. And they make God much smaller than he actually is. There's no way around it. This is one of the reasons God says, You cannot make any kind of image to try and represent me. Because it will distort me and reduce me. Think about it. Exodus 32. The golden calf. Well, they're trying to worship the right God, but they're worshiping it through the golden calf. But now, all of a sudden, God is limited to one place at one time, when the truth is He's omnipresent and everywhere. A golden calf can't tell you about God's incredible love, can it? It limits Him. A golden calf has no way of depicting and conveying God's incredible power. It limits him. So the point is, anything we make to help us in our worship of God or to picture God ultimately makes him smaller than he is. And this, by the way, is the source of what is often the Catholic and Protestant difference when it comes to church architecture. Historically, uh, Catholic churches and Catholic cathedrals are incredibly beautiful, spacious places. Places where you can walk in and people say you can almost feel God's presence there. They were created with good intent to help people begin to understand the awesomeness of God and the greatness of God. But here's sort of what happens over time. People would come into the Catholic Church, and they'd say, well, you can just feel God's presence here. So God must be here. And if he must be here, that means he's not out there. And if I want to pray to him, I better go to church where I can find him. Do you see how all of a sudden he starts to get limited and smaller? I'll give you another example with this. If you've been to the Catholic Church, you know that they often have... Um, Statues are of Christ, and he's on the cross. He's hanging on the cross. That's true. Jesus did dry on the cross, but that's only part of the story. He didn't die on the cross, but he was buried in the tomb, And then what really makes a difference is three days later, the tomb was empty. He rose from the grave, and right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But when all you see is that image of him hanging on the cross, you start to get a distorted, incomplete picture. Often Catholic churches may have beautiful, ornate, stained-glass windows that depict biblical scenes, created for a good reason to help illiterate people understand stories of the Bible. starts out in a good way. But they're often so beautiful and so captivating that people all of a sudden saying, I want to go see Jesus. I want to go pray to Jesus. I'm going to go look at Jesus in the window. Or I can't approach Jesus, so I can approach one of the apostles in the window. And then all of a sudden you start seeing candles that are left in front of the images and prayers that are offered to the images. And what's happened is the beauty of these things has actually made them objects of worship, instead of the true God, who is the only one who has a right to receive our praise and worship. The Protestants, uh, who wrestled with this, they had sort of a rebellion against this. And they said, you know, we want to have a very simple place of worship. We want to get rid of all kinds of images and objects that would become places and things that people would look to to worship. And so that's why you often see the the Protestant churches are rather simple in structure, just a gathering and a meeting place. But in the Protestant churches, what you find is instead of being image-based, they're word-based. They're a place where you hear the preaching of the word of God much more than you see images that try to picture God. Now you wonder why. It also comes out of Scripture. Let me show you Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. God strictly warns his people not to make any kind of crafted image. But By the way, how did God convey himself to us? Through his spoken word. Word, and the Protestant churches say that our job, therefore, is to read the word, to preach the word, to proclaim the word, because the word is God's chosen method of conveying Himself to us. The Protestants have also pointed out, by the way, we talk about people being born again and spiritual life happening in people. Did you notice that uh, nobody is ever born again because they saw a picture? <laughs> Nobody is born again because they saw an image. They're born again because they heard the word of the gospel. Peter tells us this in First Peter. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Therefore, if we want spiritual life to take place, we preach the word of God. That's the, that's the reason. So, images, they reduce God and they can't create salvation. Only the Word can. Second thing is this graven images divert our worship from the Creator to His creation. Another danger. And is that these crafted images, even if they're done for good reasons and good purposes, can so quickly become objects of worship and divert our attention to them instead of God. A good example of that comes from 2 Kings 18. The background, 2 Kings 18, it has to do with Moses and the people of Israel when they're in the wilderness. They had grumbled against God. God had sent a swarm of venomous snakes uh, to his people. Many people were bitten. People were dying. They called out to Moses, Moses, help us, what should we do? And God said, create a bronze serpent, put it on the pole, hold it up in the air, and everyone who looks on the bronze servant will live, even though they've been bitten by a snake and should die. Which, by the way, is an awesome forecast of exactly what Jesus Christ came to do for us, isn't it? That we've been bitten by sin, and we're slated to die eternal death, but by looking to Jesus Christ, we will be saved? Good thing. Got to love the bronze snake, but the problem is, is what happens to the bronze snake over time? In fact, when Hezekiah becomes king, he has to destroy the bronze snake. Let's look what it says in the scripture about what was happening. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. A good part of their history actually became an object of worship. People preferred to worship the bronze snake they could see rather than the awesome, almighty God that they couldn't see. It's Exodus 32 and the golden calf all over again, isn't it? Trying to make the incomprehensible, awesome God comprehensible again. First through a golden calf, now through a bronze snake. And by the way, that desire to reduce the incomprehensible God and make him comprehensible is alive and well in us, too. I'll give you a sort of a fun example. You get to get a couple laughs out of this. Um, It can happen in churches. Before I came to Crosswinds, my first senior pastorate was in a small, old, evangelical-free church in Michigan. And we um, had a nice basement. And in the basement was this nice big painting of Jesus. You guys remember, remember the painting of Jesus? White, Anglo-Saxon, no, no pimples, perfect complexion Jesus. That one, nice big one down there. Well, we started a kid's ministry on Wednesday night because you have to start a kid's ministry, right, guys? Yeah, you got to do one of those. So we had a kid's ministry. And if you're going to have a kid's ministry, you have to have balls. You got to throw balls. It's like a wanna So we ended up throwing balls down there. And we tried to protect Jesus. But, I mean, Jesus, he took a couple serious hits. In fact, the the corner of Jesus' painting ended up getting broken in a little bit. So I took it upon myself to save Jesus. And I took him off the wall. And I put him in a safe place called the furnace room. I didn't realize what I had done. Because for some people, I became known as the pastor who took Jesus out of church. You see, what happened was that Jesus, for some people, had been there a long time. They'd always remembered their church with that picture of Jesus. And it started to become venerated and worshipped like a bronze snake. It was that immovable piece of church furniture And it was starting to receive some of the object or some of the affection that should have been reserved for only God Himself. Let's move down to the third point. Graven images leave us with the false belief that we can manipulate God through them. If you have a graven image that's involved in your worship, you think you can control God. Well, maybe if I just offer the right incense to it. Maybe if I make the right pilgrimage to go see it, maybe if I offer prayers to it, then God will give me his favor. I'll show you what this looks like in, in modern day. Go ahead and put this, the image up. This is Our Lady of Guadalupe. She's found in a Catholic church in Mexico. She is the most venerated um, of the Catholic uh, what do they call these things? I'm, looking, I'm hunting for a word. R- r- places they go where people pray, whatever they're called. So people come from all over the world to see this picture and to pray to God before this picture of Mary. And of course, because they are in desperate situations, they have been to approach this, this painting of Mary that is in this Catholic church on their knees. Go ahead and put that picture up. They approach on their knees from great distances away thinking that this will make their prayers more effective as they approach the Our Lady of Guadalupe painting in that cathedral. There's stories you can find on the internet of uh, women with children who are sick who hold the children in their hands and great distances away. They start approaching on their knees and crying. And finally, by the time they get to this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, their knees are nothing but bloody, thinking that this great act of penance will make their prayers for the health and life of their children more effective. Does that help them manipulate God and gain His favor? Absolutely not. First of all, Mary's in heaven, incredibly wonderful woman, obviously. She's a mother of Jesus, but we don't pray to her. Uh, we pray to Jesus, and we're to go do directly to Him. And actually, if anything, I think that Jesus is a little upset that people are going through all kinds of penance and suffering to pray to an graven image that's not even of Him, of Mary. You see how this gets skewed. Let me give you another example from the Bible. The Old Testament tells about a time when Israel was in a war with the Philistines. Things were not going well, they were losing. Somebody had the bright idea that they knew how to win. All we need to do is go get the ark, the God box. If we can just bring the God box to battle, I guarantee you we can win. We can manipulate God and force Him to give us victory. Look what the scriptures say in First Samuel 4, verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And A little bit later it says, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. They've got the god box. Did it work? Was God successfully manipulated into forcing them to have victory? Absolutely not. See, when you end up worshiping an image rather than the God, then God, you think you can manipulate him. And it doesn't work. In fact, God let the ark be captured, and trust me, he was quite good at defending himself from that point forward. So we've learned reasons why God says this command. It always makes God smaller. Which than he is. We've also learned that it diverts our worship from the creator to a piece of creation. We've also learned that it lures us with this false sense of security that we can manipulate God as we manipulate the image. But the second commandment also has a warning with it, a very stiff one, and it's this, breaking it will hurt your children. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Why this stiff warning? Disobedience to this command has a multi-generational impact. Some people will get upset and they say, well, how could God punish the sins of children? Uh, or How could God punish children for the sins of their fathers? But notice the text here. It says, punishes children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, the fathers hate God and disobey this command. And the result is the children also hate God for three and four generations and disobey this command. A good example of it is the Our Lady of Guadalupe picture that you saw from that uh, Catholic church in Mexico. It was painted in the year 1531. It was painted with probably a very good intent to help people in worship. But over time, what has it done to subsequent generations? It's become venerated and now is an object of worship. See how that happens over time into a multi-generational curse? A good biblical example of this comes out of Judges chapter 17. In Judges 17, we find a guy named Micah, small town, Ephraim. He's not a good guy. He steals some silver from his mom. By the way, guys, don't steal money from your mother, just so you know. Uh, But thankfully, he cleans his act up, gives his money back to his mom, Mom says, okay, you know what, we're going to do with some of this money is we're going to take some of the silver and we're going to bring it to the silversmith and we're going to make a silver image to help us in worship. Now, Micah, he's trying to be legit about this. He makes this silver image to help him in worship and he even gets a young Levitical priest. The idea is he wants to worship the right God, he wants to do it the right way, but not when it comes to an image. He wants an image to help him. From there, it gets interesting. We, the Bible tells us of some Danites from the tribe of Dan who actually scout out the area, find that Micah is a little well healed, got some cash, decide we're going to attack him. They attack him and take his silver image. And they take the Levites and they go back to the tribe of Dan and Judges 18 ends with this little phrase and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan the son of Gershom son of Moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. I mean they're orthodox Moses own grandson is the one leading worship but there's a small problem they're violating the second commandment. They're worshiping God through this stolen silver image, and they're doing it for generations. Later in the uh, history of the Old Testament, you find that there's a division between the northern and southern kingdom right after King Solomon. Maybe you've read about that. Rehoboam takes the ten tribes... Excuse me, Jeroboam takes the ten tribes to the north, Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, starts leading the two tribes to the south. It's called Israel and Judah. Jeroboam all of a sudden starts to realize that all the people still are going back to Jerusalem to worship. And maybe this division is going to get healed and he's going to lose his position of power. So he has an idea. He says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give some alternate places of worship of Yahweh, but we'll do it in the north, so people don't have to go to the two southern tribes in the south. We're going to set up two golden bulls for worship. Does that sound familiar? Look what the text says. 1 Kings 12, 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He borrowed the exact same Hebrew phrase from Exodus 32. One golden calf to help them worship Yahweh at the base of Mount Sinai Jeroboam now has two golden bulls to help them worship Yahweh. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You'd think the people would be freaking out. History is repeating itself. But what tribe has absolutely no problem and says, bring the golden calf and put it with us? The Danites. Because for generations, they've been worshiping God through a little silver image that was stolen from Micah. So we're used to violating the second commandment. So bring the golden bull here. Interestingly, by the way, a bull also ties into Canaanite religion and Baal worship. And this becomes what is one of the the connecting pieces between Israelite worship and Canaanite worship, and ultimately leads to the apostasy of the 10 northern tribes of Israel, God's judgment by the Assyrians, who wipes them out, brings them into captivity, and they never return. Where does the beginning of this huge disaster start? all the way back in Judges 17 with a guy named Micah who decided to melt down some silver and make a graven image to help him in his worship of God. Worshiping the right God the wrong way. The point is this. Violation of this command has a multi-generational impact. There's no way to escape it. It'll hurt our children. The last point is this. God's commandments promise keeping this commandment will leave a lasting blessing. But it says, but showing steadfast love, literally to the thousandth generation, of those who love me and keep my commandments. While breaking this commandment has a multi-generational impact for three or four generations, keeping this commandment has a much greater multi-generational blessing, literally to the thousandth generation. Of refusing to reduce God and create an image to help him in worship. Now let me talk about how does this commandment apply today. Number one: be careful of church artistry that ends up becoming church idolatry. The Bible is not against beautifying a house of worship. I mean, look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. But very clearly, nothing pictured God and nothing distracted from the worship of God in the Old Testament tabernacle. But in the New Testament church, sometimes beautiful artistry can actually become objects of worship in and of themselves. So be careful of artistry that turns into idolatry. Number two, avoid imaging the Father. The scripture is very clear that there is no image out there that could ever capture or represent God the Father. But if you were to think of God the Father right now, what comes to mind? An old man with white hair, right? Why is that? Because people have tried to depict him. Even Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Go ahead and put this up. This is the creation of Adam from the Sistine Chapel, Adam is on the left side, God is on the right side. And how is God the Father pictured? As an old man with white hair. It's a clear violation of the second commandment. Number three, be careful of wor- church worship that is experience-based, not word-based. We talked about earlier the idea of the Roman Catholic and Protestant difference with image-based worship. Versus word-based worship. In the Protestant church today, we are struggling with what's called experience-based worship. I'm not saying this is something that I believe we're struggling with here in Crosswinds. But if you think about this, you can go to some churches and people say, why do I love that church? It's the experience I love when they turn off the lights. And I love when I start hearing that thudding, pounding bass. And all of a sudden, they turn on the smoke machine. And then all of, you know, there's a, they come out on the guitars, and it's a huge, wonderful experience. And all of a sudden, people are more attracted to the experience than the God who we should be worshiping. Now, I'm not saying that an exciting worship service is a bad thing. But just be careful of that. The other thing I want to mention to you is this. Don't reduce God by worshiping, him, by worshiping some of his attributes instead of all of his attributes. Uh, this past week, I did a little bit of interaction with somebody who is uh, really espousing a strong lesbian homosexual agenda in a church that is in our area. And they said, my God loves everybody. That's true. He does love everybody, but that's only part of the picture. (laughs) You've reduced him. It also says that God's going to also be the judge of everybody. (laughs) It also says that God will judge the homosexual and the heterosexual, and he'll judge all of our sin. We are forgiven through Jesus Christ, but we still have to face the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for based on how we lived. So don't just focus on God's love but remove the other part of the picture of God's justice and judgment. It's not a fair picture. Other thing to give you is this. By the way, God gave us an image to worship. His name is Jesus. You see, why anything we do to create an image of God will reduce him, it'll distort him, God, the incomprehensible God, out of his love and kindness, sought to make himself known. So without removing any of his divinity, he poured himself completely and totally into a human body in his humanity and became Jesus. So if you want to see, Je- you want to see what God looks like, you want to know God better, you don't create an image. You look to Jesus, our Savior. What does it say in the scriptures? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? Look to Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Looking to Jesus takes nothing away from your picture of God the Father because he completely has his nature and his image. In fact, Jesus said this, Jesus said to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The incomprehensible God made himself comprehensible through Jesus. And the one thing that an image could never convey, that only Jesus could convey, is God's incredible love for us. In particular, we see it on the cross, where Jesus died in our place for our sins. And we see it in the empty tomb, is he conquered Satan, sin, and death. And we see it as he sits at the right hand of the Father, victorious over all. Now we're going to close with communion. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is for Christians. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, feel free to join us. But if you don't know Jesus, I would ask you to abstain. But while the elements are being passed and you're holding the bread and and the cup, I want you to think of this. Communion reminds us that through Jesus, the incomprehensible, awesome God made himself comprehensible to us. And his love that he has for us, he made himself comprehensible. And so we could understand that through his cross and through his resurrection and through his eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we want to confess that so oftentimes we want to reduce our Heavenly Father. We want to make him smaller. Please forgive us for that. And Jesus, I especially thank you for you taking on flesh, not just to be the perfect sacrifice for us, but to be, make the incomprehensible God so much more comprehensible to us so we can see what God is like with flesh on, especially as we look in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.